Welcome to episode 128 of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast for June the 9th, 2009. My name is David, and I'm a Fred. On this week's episode of the Fredcast, a Twitter birth announcement, Bernard Hinault speaks out, a bike riding supreme, the Dauphiné Libéré, Bernard Cole points the finger of blame at the Tour de France's top 10, a bike that goes 73 miles per hour, and much more. Following the news, midnight looks like a great time for a bike ride. And then, of course, pod-safe cycling music. So sit back, relax, and if you're riding your bike hammer just a little bit harder, because here comes the Fredcast. Hello, fellow Freds. Welcome back to another episode of the Fredcast. Graham Street is back with another great promotion just for Fredcast listeners. So listen up. You're really going to like this. Hey, Fredcast listeners and fellow everyday cyclists. This is Graham Street, owner for CycleClub.com. I got a question for you today. If seven days from now you were, say, I don't know, three to seven pounds lighter on the bike, would that make you happy? Do you think it would make you a little stronger or faster in the hills? Do you think it would make you a little bit more efficient for your longer rides or your favorite group rides? I bet you it would. Now, I got another question for you. How much money have you spent on bike gear to help lighten your bike weight? New frames, new wheels, new stems, new bolts that hold the stems, 100 bucks, 500 bucks, 1000 bucks. It's amazing how much money as everyday cyclists we spend trying to lighten our bike, and that bike weight, even at its lightest, is a fraction of what we weigh. You see, the greatest opportunity for you to improve in the hills, and of course in overall cycling performance, is to drop some extra body weight and maintain or improve strength. And that's precisely what we do at Cycle Club every day, especially with our most popular system, which is our seven-day fat loss boot camp. Seven days to guarantee three to seven pounds of body weight off your body, no matter why you ride. Three to seven pounds, that's significant. We've had thousands of people from around the world use this boot camp every single day with great success. What I want you to do right now is go to thefredcast.com. I have a special banner and link there for Fredcast listeners. I invite you over to Cycle Club to become a member. If you're kind of skeptical about becoming a full-time member for the year, join for the month, 1995. You'll get our fat loss boot camp, all of our modules, access to all of our workouts, our climbing boot camp included for 1995. For 1995, if you're three to seven pounds lighter in seven days, would that make you happy? I bet you it would. I'll see you over at Cycle Club. Oh, I don't know if you heard that correctly, but Graham is offering you a month of Cyclo Club membership for $19.95. That's going to give you not only his fat loss program, three to seven pounds guaranteed that you're going to lose in the next seven days, but it gives you access to everything that's in Cycle Club for an entire month. All the stuff that Graham's been talking about for the past couple of months. That's a screaming deal. There's no way that this is going to last very long. So go over to thefredcast.com and check this out. I'm a Cycle Club member. I get something out of it every single day. I know you will too, but I also know that in these economic times, sometimes you're not really looking to sign up for the full year until you've had a chance to try it out, and that's why Graham is making you this offer. $19.95 for a full month of Cycle Club. You're going to get a lot out of it. Go check it out now. You'll be three to seven pounds lighter, 
and you'll be a lot happier on the bike just for having joined Cycle Club. Once again, I also want to thank Graham Street and Cycle Club for their support of the Fredcast. One last bit real quick before we get to the news. Graham and I are going to be doing another one of our Q&A sessions. Last time you remember we did a two-parter about climbing and I got a lot of great feedback on that. Our next version of Q&A with David and Graham is going to be about training for centuries and about nutrition. So please send your questions by email or voicemail or by Twitter, but let us know what questions you've got about training for centuries and about nutrition. We'll be holding that Q&A here in a couple of days, and we will be presenting it to you on a future version of the Fredcast. Topping the news tonight is a special birth announcement because, as you remember, last week we talked about the fact that Lance Armstrong and his girlfriend, Anna Hansen, were expecting a baby, and Lance tweeted about that as he headed to the airport after the Giro d'Italia ended last week. Well, just a couple of days later came a tweet from Lance that said simply, What's up, world? My name is Max Armstrong, and I just arrived. My mommy is healthy, and so am I. This came on Lance's account at about 11.15 Eastern Daylight Time last Thursday night, for those of you who want to keep track and maybe send little Max a birthday card. There was also a picture attached, and then a couple of minutes later, Lance tweeted about how happy he was with the doctor and nurse for the job that they did in the delivery. So congratulations to Lance and to Anna, and welcome to the world, Max. You are going to be watched by over 1 million Twitter users because Lance has just gone over a million followers on Twitter. Kind of a cool way to announce a birth, and for Lance, who prefers to make his own news and then report it, this was very typical. Someone else who made their own news last week was five-time winner of the Tour de France, Bernard Hinault. Hinault was giving a presentation in Montero, which is the starting location of the final stage of the 2009 Tour de France. And during the question and answer period, well... One might say that you could call this Bernard Eno speaks out, but some people might also say Bernard Eno freaks out because Eno made some very strange and very controversial statements in answers to the questions that were put to him. For instance, talking about French cyclists, he said the French don't train. Nobody taps them in the mouth to get them going. It's necessary to block their salary and later hand them back the money if they win something. He said there are champions who become like civil servants when they turn pro. You have to put a knife to their throats to get any results. The French earn too much money and don't make enough effort. Talking about the Tour de France, he said the Tour isn't hard. It's necessary to stop complaining. Cycling is a hard profession, but it's better than going to the factory. A racer who wins has never paid too much. If you really want to win, you fight until your last breath. Talking about Lance Armstrong coming to the Tour de France, he said, I hope he won't be there. Is he afraid of France? Nobody forced him to come. He has only to stay home. He cannot win the Tour. I hope that Contador gives him a beating. Talking about radios in the Tour, he said, I'm against them. It's just a Game Boy that has a gigolo attached at the end, telling the racer when to take a piss. With Guinard, we studied the map and the wind the morning before the stage. Then, talking about Greg LeMond, he said, He was a good racer, but not an attacker. He was unable to make tactics by himself. In 1986, I kept my promise to help him win the Tour. Me? I just wanted to have fun. Sort of strange comments from Bernard Eno, and I've put a link in the show notes and also in the Enhanced Podcast on where you can find the original version of these quotates 
quotations in French on the Le Parisien website. Go ahead and take a look. It really is bizarre. Last year, you'll remember that several times I mentioned the tragic deaths of racers Christy Goff and Matt Peterson, who were killed in an accident in Santa Clara County, California, when Sheriff's Deputy James Council fell asleep at the wheel of his patrol car, crossed the center median, and killed the two cyclists and injured a third other. It was proved that Council fell asleep at the wheel after working a 12-hour shift, and now as a result of that accident, Council has been demoted to a position of technician, and he'll be taking a $30,000 pay cut and spending four months under house arrest. Now, cycling groups in the area have asked the department to change their policy that requires officers to work 12-hour shifts. According to Anthony Borba of Third Pillar Racing in the local community, quote, there was evidence that the officer was working a late night, 12-hour shift the night before, and then was placed into a car in the early morning the day of. I think that's a very dangerous practice. Santa Clara Sheriff's Department spokesman Sergeant Don Morrissey said that the department has hired a sleep deprivation expert who used to be with NASA, and that they're going to look at the research into what working 12-hour shifts means and how it impacts their personnel. Seems pretty clear to me what 12 hours on and then going right into another shift the next day will do to a person. It doesn't take a high-paid former NASA sleep deprivation expert to explain why it is that council fell asleep at the wheel. Seems to me that not only does council bear some responsibility, but, and this is personal opinion only, that perhaps the sheriff's department needs to own up to their part in this tragic and very avoidable accident. Another week, another Fredcast, another product recall. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is announcing a voluntary recall of 2005 model Novara Trionfo bikes. About 260 of these bikes were sold by REI around the country. And the problem here is that the fork can separate from the steer tube, causing the rider to lose control and, of course, posing a fall hazard. REI has received two reports of forks separating, causing riders to fall, and the injuries include a fractured clavicle, broken teeth, facial damage, and head injuries. Maybe I should have put a warning on this story. Now, again, this recalls 2005 Novara Trionfo bikes, that's T-R-I-O-N-F-O, with Aprebic carbon fiber forks, A-P-R-E-B-I-C. The bikes are blue and white with black forks and have the name Novara printed on the bars. They were sold at REI retail stores nationwide from January 2005 through August 2006 for between $720 and $1,900. They were made in Taiwan, and of course, you should stop using the bike immediately, return them to REI for a free repair. And as always, in the show notes and in the Enhanced Podcast, you will find links to where you can find more information on this recall. The Enhanced Podcast has the link to the CPSC recall page, but the show notes have links not only to the CPSC page, but also to the REI recall page and to a PDF on REI's website that discusses this recall specifically.
Here's a bit of good news for those of you in Edinburgh, Scotland, especially those of you who are cyclists, although I have to say that the Association of British Drivers isn't so happy about this story. The Sydney city of Edinburgh has joined Madrid, Milan, Munich, and a few others in agreeing to work toward the goal set up by the EU of trying to make one in every six journeys in that city by bicycle by the year 2020. Now, their agreement to this plan commits Edinburgh to promoting cycling within its overall transport policy, as well as setting aside more money to help raise the proportion of bicycle journeys in relation to other forms of transport from 4% to 15% in just over 10 years. Now, speaking of the Association of British Drivers, David Leggy of that organization is quoted as saying, this is another attempt to make life harder for drivers in Edinburgh. Don't know what mandate the council has for signing up to this or whether they've asked people on the streets whether they actually want this. It sounds ambitious, and I'd like to know what research the council put into it before signing up. Now, the council said that the decision to sign the agreement was part of its long-term vision for Edinburgh, but said it had yet to decide on exactly what they would do in order to meet that 15% target. Meanwhile, Gary Bell of the cycling lobby group Spokes said that he welcomed the decision, saying, quote, I think the council will have to do a fair bit of work if they're going to achieve that sort of target. Now, Councillor Gordon McKenzie, the city's transport convener, said, quote, Edinburgh has to address both congestion and healthy lifestyles. This is why we're so keen to sign up to the ambitious targets of the charter. Getting more people onto their bikes is not just good for the environment, it's good for their health and well-being, too. Well, by now, many of you around the world are familiar with the name of Judge Sonia Maria Sotomayor, born in 1954. Sotomayor is a federal judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Now, the U.S. Court of Appeals, although there are several circuits around the nation, is the nation's second highest court. Judge Sotomayor was recently nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in the land, and that was on May 26, 2009, President Barack Obama nominating her to replace retiring Justice David Souter on the Supreme Court. Well, what on earth does this have to do with cycling? Well, Senator Chuck Schumer was talking about Sotomayor and her, her bid to become the next Supreme Court justice. In order to do that, you have to be confirmed by the United States Senate. And so she's been making the rounds on Capitol Hill. And after her meeting with Senator Schumer, Senator Schumer was quoted as saying, she's a very human person. He said that they talked about New York and then went on to say, she's a bicycle rider. I'm a bicycle rider. We talked a little bit about our favorite routes. So those of you in the U.S. who may be watching this nomination closely to see whether or not she gets confirmed, whether you agree with the nomination or you don't agree with the nomination, those of you listening do have something in common with Judge Sotomayor. We're all bike riders. Well, from the world of politics to the world of professional bike racing, it's time to talk about the Dauphiné Libéré, the traditional prelude to the Tour de France every year. The Dauphiné is taking place right now. It started on June the 7th, and it ends on June the 14th. 
As I mentioned on last week's show, there's a couple of key stages in this year's race. One of them starts tomorrow, and that is the 42-kilometer individual time trial. Alberto Contador still favored in this year's race, but we'll see what happens as we talk about the results so far. The other big stage, the one that a lot of us are looking forward to, is the one on Thursday as the riders make their ascent of Mont Ventoux, Mont Ventoux being the penultimate stage of this year's Tour de France. A lot of folks looking forward to that famous climb in Provence, so we will see how that goes as the week progresses. As far as riders that you should be looking at this year, Again, Alberto Contador from Team Astana, definitely somebody to look out for. He's already won the Tour de France, and he's gunning for it again this year. Uh, Alejandro Valverde, we've talked about him before. Alejandro has been banned from racing in Italy, but since the Dauphiné stays entirely in the country of France, he is racing in this year's Dauphiné. Again, Cadell Evans from Ceylon Lotto. He took second place in last year's Tour de France, criticized for not attacking, and uh, he lashed back at those folks who criticized him last year, and he's one of the folks to look for in this year's Dauphiné. Yvonne Basso, of course, is racing this year. Tom Bonin is racing. David Miller. There's a lot of very good riders. Conspicuously absent, somebody who has used the Dauphiné as a prelude to the Tour de France himself in the past is Lance Armstrong. Again, he's back in the United States at the side of his girlfriend, Anna Hansen, as they have welcomed the birth of their son, Max. So far, there have been three stages completed in this year's Dauphiné Libéré. The first, on June the 7th, was the individual time trial in Nancy, France. It was seven and a half kilometers, a fast race, eventually won by Cadell Evans from Silence Lotto in 15 minutes, 36.64 seconds. Second place going to Team Astana's Alberto Contador, eight seconds behind Cadell Evans. Third, Alejandro Valverde from Spain and Castaparnia, 23 seconds back. Remember some of these names? They're some of the names I just mentioned a few moments ago. In stage two, it was a typical stage affair where there was an early break, which was eventually caught with a few kilometers to go before the line. But then, with just about a kilometer to go, Britain's David Miller went off on a flyer trying to solo to victory. Eventually, however, Tom Bonin's team quick step shut him down and seemed to be setting Bonin up for the victory, but Bonin was pipped at the line by Angelo Furlan from Team Lamprey in 5 hours, 35 minutes, and 4 seconds. Second place going to Marcus Zberg from Team BMC, and third to Tom Bonin. After that stage was over, it was still Cadell Evans in first place, Alberto Contador in second, eight seconds back, and Alejandro Valverde in third, still 23 seconds back of Cadell Evans. Today's stage three was a 113-mile stage from Tornus to Saint-Étienne, and it was won by Nicky Terpstra of the Netherlands after a long breakaway. And in a five-man sprint at the line, it was Terpstra in first place after four hours, 32 minutes, and 34 seconds. Second place in the same time going to Ludovic Turpin from France and AG2R. Third, also in the same time going to Yuri Trofimov from Russia and Bbox Buig Telecom. Fourth place going to Remy Poriol from France and Cofidis. And fifth, Inigo Landaluz from Spain and Euskaltel. After today's stage, 
topping the general classification, Nikki Terpster from Team Milram in 10 hours, 23 minutes, and 45 seconds. In second place now is Remy Poriol from France and Kofidis, 26 seconds back. In third, Yuri Trofimov from Russia and B-Box Buig Telecom, 27 seconds back. Fourth place, Ludovic Turpin from France and AG2R. He's 36 seconds back. Cadell Evans now in fifth place, one minute, one seconds back. Sixth place is Inigo Landaluz from Spain, one minute, four seconds back. And in seventh is Alberto Contador from Spain and Tim Astana, one minute, nine back. In eighth, Alejandro Valverde from Spain and Castaparna, one twenty-four behind Nicky Terpstra. Now, since tomorrow is the individual time trial, there is every, every chance that Cadell Evans or Alejandro Valverde or indeed Alberto Contador will be able to regain this one-plus minute that they're behind Terpstra at the moment and get back atop the general classification. We'll have more for you on the next episode of the Fredcast. Meanwhile, there was racing going on here in the United States, and this was in the U.S. city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This was the Philadelphia International Championship of Cycling, the 25th Annual Philadelphia International Championships of of Cycling, and this was a 156-mile road course. It was completed in 6 hours, 24 minutes, and 4 seconds by Team Columbia High Road's Andre Greipel and Greg Henderson, who took first and second place, edging out Bissell Pro Cycling's Kirk O.B. At the end of the race, Henderson was quoted as saying, we knew we had the two strongest riders and it was going to come to a sprint. I'm pretty good at preparing a sprint for Greipel. Greipel continued by saying, everything worked out pretty good. Before the race, we said that Henderson would do the lead out. I think all the guys on Columbia High Road trusted us, and we did it. The women were also racing in Philadelphia in a 57.6-mile course. This one won by Ina Tutenberg from guess which team? You guessed it, Team Columbia High Road in 2 hours, 22 minutes, 33.5 seconds. Second place, just three-tenths of a second back, went to Joanne Kizanowski from Team Tibco. And third, going to Shelly Olds from the Pro Man Hit Squad in 2.22.34. Well, for those of you who have been concerned about whether or not you'd get to see Alberto Contador and Lance Armstrong in the 2009 Tour de France, You can rest easy now because according to the UCI and Johan Brunil and Alan Gallopin, one of Team Astana's sporting directors, who said, quote, the financial problems as of today are resolved. Remember, Team Astana had to make their financial guarantees in order for the UCI not to make good on their threat to pull Astana's UCI Pro Tour license. However, according to Johan Brunil, who talked to the Agence France Press earlier on Monday, he said, quote, the late payment has been made. The decision to change the jersey during the Giro was linked to this problem. As a result, you can start seeing Alberto Contador racing in the Dauphiné in full Astana colors. Now, there were three things that the UCI said that they wanted Astana to do. Astana had to pay their outstanding debts. They had to meet financial guarantees up to this point. And the third is that they need to make guarantees for the rest of the season. However, Bruniel said, quote, the third condition concerns the guarantee for the rest of the season, which is the responsibility of the UCI. To my knowledge, it's not been done yet. Now, 
Bruniel was also asked about a rumor about a new sponsor coming along on the team that is apparently a, quote, American company working in the Kazakhstan market. Bruniel indicated that he is not aware of the arrival of that new sponsor. If you listened to my daily tour coverage from last year's Tour de France in 2008, you'll recall what sounded like surprise at the performance of Bernard Cole. You'll recall that Bernard Cole won the polka dot jersey as the king of the mountains in last year's Tour de France and also finished third on the podium in the general classification in the Tour. You will also recall, perhaps, that Cole was suspended due to supposed doping after the Tour de France, and now in an interview with the French magazine L'Equipe, Cole has admitted that not only was he taking the EPO derivative CERA, but he also was taking illegal blood transfusions during last year's Tour de France. In the interview, Cole admitted that the biological passport program set up by the UCI and the World Anti-Doping Agency actually helped him and his managers put together their blood doping program. He was quoted as saying, quote, The top riders are so professional in their doping that they know very well they have to keep their blood values stable so that they're not detected. The UCI sent us the values resulting from the controls. We thus referred to those to mark the next ones. In a way, the passport almost helped us. Cole went on to say that his manager flew to France three times during last year's tour, giving him half-liter bags of blood that were drawn before the race in order to perform the blood doping. He said, quote, by re-injecting half a liter of blood, the blood parameters are not subject to suspect variation. Once again, indicating how sophisticated the blood doping program was and how it relied on the biological passport program to make sure that they didn't get detected. Well, to try to make sure that they didn't get detected in Cole's case. Now, according to Cole, he goes on to accuse other riders in the peloton, saying, quote, I didn't cheat anyone in the peloton. Be sure of that. There's like a social organization of doping within the peloton. These things are accepted. Talking about the test in which he was finally caught for doping, he said, At first, I once again tried to reassure myself. Okay, I was dead. But we were all dead. Many other riders had taken doping. What were the French authorities going to do? Disqualify everyone in the race? I told myself they wouldn't dare. Oddly, only three of us got caught. I'm convinced that the top ten could have been positive. And while Cole obviously accuses the top 10 men in the general classification, he doesn't want to accuse his Gerolsteiner team, saying, quote, there was no systematic doping inside the team for sure. Be that as it may, somebody who's now admitted to cheating, I don't know that we can believe anything he has to say. Team Katusha has taken on an interesting take to anti-doping efforts in its own team. They've imposed new conditions on their racers, saying that if they test positive, they would have to pay a fine of up to five times their annual salary back to the team. However, three members of the team, including Robbie McEwen, Gert Stegemans, and Kenny DeHayes, have said that they are not interested and are refusing to sign contracts with those new conditions. And while the press is reporting Simply those facts that some of those riders are refusing to sign the contract, Robbie McEwen on his website said that he's not against this addendum in his contract. However, 
he's been advised, I guess by legal counsel, that some of the terms were, quote, not judicially correct. He then went on to say, I fully support the principles behind the anti-doping stance of my team, and when the issues concerning the details of the addendum are clarified, I will add my weight to the Katusha campaign. I want it clearly understood that I am absolutely anti-doping. So it seems like it's just a technicality, perhaps a legal detail in the contract, and then it sounds like McEwen will sign it. So it's not a matter of being uh, a doper or not anti-doping. He just doesn't like the terms of the contract as they've been presented. We'll see whether or not that changes in the days and weeks to come. The question, however, is whether or not Spanish cyclist Antonio Colum of the Katusha team has signed the contract yet because he was suspended last week after testing positive for the blood booster EPO after he was targeted by the UCI and its biological passport program. In a statement, the UCI said this adverse finding is a direct result of a targeted test conducted on Colum using information in his blood profile and knowledge of his upcoming race schedule. He's been suspended until the Spanish Cycling Federation can hold a disciplinary hearing. However, he can ask for his B sample to also be tested. I'm really curious to find out whether or not he signed that addendum, and if so, whether or not Team Katusha will go through with it and ask him for that five-time salary penalty. Everyone's concerned about environmentalism and going green, and Swobo is taking it to a new level with their Message in a Bottle project that they're using to hopefully raise awareness about water bottle waste and the impact that bottled water has on our Earth's precious water resources. What they've done is they've put together a program where you can buy a water bottle from Swobo for $6. And then when you're done with the bottle, when it's worn out and you want to get rid of it, instead of throwing it away, it is pre-addressed. So all you need to do is put a stamp on it and drop it in the U.S. mail, and it will then be sent to the Nestle Water Bottling Corporation. Printed on the bottle is a message protesting Nestle's contribution to water bottle waste and the toll that it takes on our environmental resources. According to Tim Parr, the founder of Swobo, quote, we feel that the world doesn't need more water bottles with company logos, but we also know that water bottles in and of themselves are a good thing because they promote tap water use over bottled water use. So we created a program that allows the bottle to do the deed of holding tap water, but then it acts as a soapbox once the user is done with it. Our goal is to flood Nestle with the idea that maybe creating containers that hold tap water is a better business than trucking water all over the world. We'll see. And like everything else we do, this seems like a lot more fun than just making water bottles. All Swobo water bottles are biodegradable, recyclable, and recycled. This coming to us from a story in Bicycle Retailer and Industry News. If you'd like more information, I've put links in the show notes and also in the Enhanced Podcast. Hey, do you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the University of South Florida dean who was involved in, well, stealing a graduate student's bicycle and giving it to somebody else to ride? The administrator's name was Abdul Rao, and he's reached a deal with the Hillsborough State Attorney's Office saying that he will not face criminal charges, but however, he will have to participate in community service and pay a fine for helping to steal that graduate student's bike. According to his attorney, this deal was not an admission of guilt. However, since that video is on YouTube and does show him and another man stealing that bike from a campus loading dock, well, it seems pretty clear to me. 
course, Rao, a former senior associate vice president for research from the University of South Florida, has resigned from his job. For any of you who have been following the Fredcast for any length of time, especially if you follow my Twitter feed, you know that I spend a lot of time traveling for business. And one of the resources that I find exceptionally helpful to me on the internet and on my iPhone is Google Street View. Now, if you're not familiar with Google Street View, just go to maps.google.com, type in an address in most places in the United States and a lot of places, other places around the world, and you'll find that if you drag a little icon of a little guy to the street, you'll actually be able to walk through or drive through a neighborhood and see everything from street level. Now, Google accomplishes this with specially equipped cars that have 360-degree cameras mounted on top. They drive through neighborhoods taking pictures and then mapping those onto their Google Maps website. It's exceptionally helpful. I used it the other day uh, when somebody wanted me to meet them at a restaurant. I just wanted to make sure I was going to go to the right place, and so I was able to look it up. Well, Google is now, according to the USA Today, today. Google is now looking at adding cycling and hiking trails to their Street View feature. As a matter of fact, Google now has this unique trike. And by the way, if you go to the show notes or to the Enhanced Podcast, you can click on the link and see what it looks like. There's a video there. They have this trike, and on the back is mounted a power unit. And on a little tower behind the cyclist, there is the typical Google Street View calendar. Now, so far, they've only started with one bike trail in Monterey, California, but they have cyclists out in California, in Italy, and in the UK looking for hiking and biking images from those locations over the summer. They're also going to be adding shots from United States theme parks. It's a very cool project, something that I'm looking forward to using. Could you imagine wanting to go find a new mountain biking trail, wondering what it looks like, and going to Street View to check it out? I think it's a great project. There's more at the USA Today article. Just go ahead and click on the link in the show notes, but I think that this is a great project. And finally, there are those of us who like to go fast on our bikes, and then there are those of us who like to go really fast on our bikes. I found a story over on Discover Magazine's blog, and then it linked to one on Wired.com about a gentleman by the name of Bob Maddox from Medford, Oregon. Bob recently took his bicycle, just a bicycle, up to 73 miles per hour thanks to the dual pulse jet engines that he applied to the left-hand side of his bike. This pulse jet ignites fuel and air 70 times per second, and it's a similar technology to what the Germans used in their buzz bombs in World War II. Now, this is the second generation of Maddox's jet-powered bike. The first had a single jet engine taking him up to 50 miles per hour. According to Maddox, quote, I feel real safe buzzing around at around 50 or so. But can you imagine what it's like to take your bicycle 73 miles per hour? I like to go fast on my bike, but that is just ridiculous. Well, that's going to do it for the news for this week's episode of the Fredcast. But I did want to remind you that we are still planning on going to the Alps September 5th through the 12th. And we'd love it if you join us. This is our Chasseur de Col 2009 trip. We're going to be going to some of the most famous climbs in the Tour de France and some of the most beautiful scenery you've ever seen from the saddle of a bicycle. Climbing up to 12 of the Alps' most famous climbs, including the Col de la Colombière, Col du Telegraph, of course, the Alpe d'Huez, and my favorite, 
the Col du Galibier. I hope you'll be able to join us. There are links in the show notes and in the enhanced podcast. We do need to get people signed up as quickly as possible. So if you've been fence sitting on this one, it's time for you to get a hold of Viva Travels now and get signed up. Check out the links. We're going September 5th through 12th. I hope you'll join us in the Alps this year. One more item before we go ahead with this week's features. I want to remind you about our Bike Shop of the Month program. We're going to be doing our next interview in the next week or so, but we would love to have even more nominations than the ones, the already great ones that we've got in the bag for you coming up in the next couple of months. So if you've got a bike shop and you think that it is worthy of being our Bike Shop of the Month, and really the whole purpose of this is to let others know about great independent bike retailers out there around the world. If you would, send us an email, send it over to Rex. It's rex at thefredcast.com. And of course, there are links in the show notes and also in the enhanced podcast. Let us know who you think should be our next Bike Shop of the Month. Well, for the past couple of months, we have been following along with Ken as he gets ready for his ride up Mont Ventoux in this year's Etape du Tour. Ken's back with another one of his training with Ken segments. So take it away, Ken. Hi, David. It's Ken, and I think it's been about four weeks since I've updated you and your listeners on how my training's going. I'm now three weeks away from leaving for France. The Etape du Tour is about six weeks from now on July 20th, and I'm getting really excited about the trip. I'm you know, just a little bit anxious just to make sure that I'm really as prepared as I can possibly be. Last month, when I last updated you, I was about ready to do the uh, threshold test, which I did, and it went well. I came in right where I wanted to be at 216 watts. And now I'm just really working on dropping that last five pounds of weight to get to 145, and it's been a bit of a struggle. I'm sort of stuck at the 148-ish zone. So I'm trying to just continue to tweak my diet, stay away from the stuff that's bad for me, and increase the workouts to four to five days a week, and hopefully that'll do the trick. Uh, the real trick is going to be to spend three weeks in France before my ride and uh, not be tempted by all the delicious food that I know is going to be waiting for me. It's getting pretty nice here in Southern California. The weather's been great. And one thing that I've been doing is trying to get outside and ride more. Uh, as you know, most of my training is on the CompuTrainer. And so I've started swapping out some of the CompuTrainer sessions for outdoor sessions and trying to simulate the, the workout but do it outside. After a few weeks of this, I really haven't felt like I've been getting the same level of intensity on the outdoor rides. And last night I did another threshold test which came in at 218 watts, and that's a 1% improvement over last month, but quite a bit below the 4 to 5% improvement I've been seeing before that. I know this is really hardly scientific, but my gut feeling is somewhat supported by the testing data, and I think that the shorter, targeted, more intense indoor workouts on the CompuTrainer just really deliver faster and uh, more substantial fitness improvements compared to just going outside and riding hard. So I'm still trying to find that perfect balance of indoor-outdoor riding because, you know, let's face it, we ride bikes to get outside and enjoy the company of other people. And the whole purpose of getting fit is to go out and enjoy riding with our friends. So I don't want to completely devote myself to riding indoor with a computer. But at the same time, since I'm training for a specific event, I really need to focus on getting as much fitness improvement as quickly as I can. 
The other thing I've been working on is fine-tuning my bike and my other gear that I'm going to need for the ride. I've been riding with an iAero power meter, uh, but I've recently added a power tap, which Rich Wharton has loaned to me for the remainder of my training and also for my trip to France. The iAero can take in the wattage from the power tap, which sends out an ant plus signal, and it has some pretty unique capabilities for sort of optimizing your riding position by analyzing drag coefficients and all kinds of other scientific stuff like that. Um, I'm also swapping out my Dura-Ace 7800 standard cranks for a set of the new 7900, I guess 7950 compact cranks, and I'm changing out my 1125 cassette for a 1227 because I really think that I'm going to need those extra gears when I hit Mont Ventoux. And I think those compact cranks and the 1227 cassette will just give me that little bit of extra capability to make it up that climb. The other thing is the weather. The weather in Provence can be really unpredictable. Most people think it's always hot in the summer, but in past years uh, they've had rain, they've had uh, really strong winds that they get there. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to leave the carbon aero rims up that are on my bike at home and, and take a more all-purpose set of, of wheels with me. I just can imagine doing that 15-mile descent uh, down from Mont Ventoux if it were raining with carbon rims, and it's not something that I really want to attempt. But more likely the weather's going to be just really, really hot. Um, so I'm just bringing about everything I can in the closet to be prepared. So the next few weeks will be devoted to increasing my training on the CompuTrainer during the week, finalizing the prep of all my gear, and trying to get in some really good long outdoor rides on the weekends. Finally, I want to thank all of the people who have gone to my Lance Armstrong Foundation website and donated money to the uh, Lance Armstrong Foundation. It's really a great cause, and I do appreciate your show support. So that's it for this week, and I'll check with you again before I leave for France, and then hopefully be able to report to you live from Mont Ventoux during the Etape Tour. Take care, David. Hey, Ken, thanks so much for that report. I, I got to admit, I'm jealous. Totally understand about wanting to take everything from the closet to make sure that you're fully prepared. I had the same thing when I went overseas to ride in the Alps last year. So sounds like your training's going very well. And uh, glad to hear that you're getting the focused training on the CompuTrainer. I definitely know what that's like. When, when you're on the CompuTrainer, it seems like you just get fitter faster, even in less time. So I found that to be very helpful as well. Great job. Looking forward to your next report. And um, we'll hear from you soon. Thanks so much. Oh, by the way, I've also put links in the show notes to where you can find information on everything that Ken talks about, including the link to his blog, so that if you're interested in donating to his Lance Armstrong Foundation uh, fundraising, you can do that as well. Go ahead and take a look at the show notes, or of course, there is a link in the Enhanced Podcast. My friend Carlton Reed from BikeBiz.com and QuickRelease.tv found an old book on cycling from 1892 written by L.F. Corns. It's called How to Bicycle. And Carlton, who is a lover of great quotes, found the following quote in that book. A ride at moonlight is a nerve tonic that beats all the phosphorus compounds that Esculapius ever dreamed of. If you've ever ridden your bike at night, you know that that's 
entirely true. A lot of times it's quieter, there's less traffic. Um, because of the focused beam of your headlight, you end up concentrating a bit more. And, you know, I've always found that nighttime rides can oftentimes be some of the, the best and most serene and also some of the best focused training that I've been able to get. Well, I've been thinking a lot about this lately because there are a number of moonlight and midnight rides around the world, one in my neck of the woods that I'm going to be taking part in in July, and I started to wonder how many rides are there around the world that are organized that take place at midnight or in the moonlight. And I asked the question on Twitter, and the number of responses I got was huge. So I can only bring you a couple of them, but they really are around the world. Most of them are in the United States, but we've got uh, at least one that's overseas over in the UK. And I thought that I might just tell you about a couple of them so that you can look for a moonlight or midnight ride in your area as well. First ride on my list was actually one that took place last weekend, June 6th and 7th, down in Moab, Utah. It's Moon Shadows in Moab, and you ride under the full moon out to Dead Horse Point, a beautiful place in the daytime, and I can just imagine what a great ride that is at night. I'm sorry I missed that. That's from Skinny Tire Events, the folks who did the Moab Skinny Tire Festival that I reported on several months ago. Now, in Portland, Oregon, on June 13th, this one may or may not be for the kiddies. Make sure that you keep this in mind. It's the World Naked Bike Ride, again, in Portland, Oregon. By the way, every one of these rides I'm going to tell you about, there are links in the show notes. Not in the Enhanced Podcast, because there's just too many to put in here. And again, this is just a sampling of the rides around the world. June 16th, also in Portland, Oregon, it's the Tapas Ride, and this one is billed as Bikes, Food, wine, and style. Sounds great. I wouldn't drink too much wine or drink too much food if you're going to be on your bike as well. From the UK comes the Dunwich Dynamo. And if it's Dunwich, don't kill me because, you know, I'm from the US, so we don't know how to speak English. Uh, the Dunwich Dynamo goes from London to the Suffolk coast July the 4th through the 5th. In Salt Lake City, Utah, also um, you could also call it Ogden because it's right in between. It's Antelope by Midnight. For those of you who aren't aware, Antelope Island is a large island in the middle of the Great Salt Lake, and you get the opportunity to ride there once a year under the full moon, and that's July 10th this year. Look for me. I will wear my Fred Cast jersey. In Lenexa, Kansas, on July 11th, the next night, it's the Lenexa Midnight Bike Ride. Chicago, July 11th, it's the L-A-T-E Moonlight Ride. In Denver on July 18th, it's the Moonlight Classic. Sort of an ongoing ride in Central Park in New York. The first Friday of every month, it's the Central Park Moonlight Ride. San Diego, August the 15th, the Moonlight Madness Ride. In St. Louis, Missouri on August the 29th, it's the Moonlight Ramble. On October 3rd, if you're anywhere near White Sands, New Mexico, check out the White Sands Moonlight Bicycle Ride. There's also the Moonlight Ramble in Houston and in Washington, D.C. A variety of companies will take you on a D.C. Monuments Night bike tour. This is just a sampling of some of the organized tours and rides that you can take on your bike. Remember, if you're going to do these, wear reflective clothing, put on a, a headlight on your bike, put a, t a nice bright taillight on, make sure your reflectors are working. But what a great thing to get out on your bike at night with others. Enjoy the great weather, the cooler temperatures, and your love of cycling. Once again, links are in the show notes for every one of the rides that I talked about. And if you've got a favorite moonlight ride or a midnight ride and you'd like to give me a ride report, we would love that. Go ahead and send it to thefredcast at gmail.com.
Now, the last story this week is not necessarily cycling related, but since those of us who are cyclists also tend to enjoy the outdoors, here's something that you might find of interest. Lots of us this year are dealing with serious economic situations, and that means that maybe we're not taking as many vacations and not able to afford some of the things that we enjoy doing outdoors. Well, the National Park Service here in the United States has recognized that and has marked three weekends this summer as so-called fee-free weekends in your national parks. This would be June 20th through the 21st, and by the way, that's Father's Day weekend, July 18th through the 19th, and August 15th through the 16th. On these weekends, you will be able to get in fee-free at more than 100 national parks around the country that usually charge entrance fees. And to make it even sweeter, a lot of the concessionaires within the parks are also offering special deals. I've put a link in the show notes and in the Enhanced Podcast to where you can get more information on the nps.gov website. Go ahead and check it out. Our national parks here in the United States are some of our most precious and most amazing resources. Take advantage of these fee-free weekends and get out and enjoy your national parks. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Fredcast. But before we go, I want to once again thank our sponsor, Graham Street and Cyclo Club. Don't forget that special deal for Fredcast listeners. You can sign up for one month of Cyclo Club. Not only take advantage of his seven-day lose three to seven pounds boot camp, but also take advantage of all of the great features of Cyclo Club. Go to www.thefredcast.com for more details. Just click on the Cyclo Club link at the top of the page, and we thank Graham and Cyclo Club for their support. I also want to remind you that you need to sign up as quickly as possible for our French Alps trips. Go, once again, go to www.thefredcast.com and click the travel link at the top of the page to join us in the Alps. And if you'd like to contact the Fredcast for any reason, go ahead and send us an email. Our email address is thefredcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can check our website anytime at www.thefredcast.com. Follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash fredcast, or go ahead and send us a voicemail or an audio comment anytime. You can use our Fredcast listener hotline. That number is area code 435-258-6FRED. That's 435 435- 2586373 And with the housekeeping out of the way, you know what that means? It's time for Pod Safe Cycling Music, something we've been doing since show number 1 and will continue to do. Tonight's music comes to us from the Pod Safe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Tonight's cut is by Phil Ayub. It's a song called River to the Ocean. I think you are going to like it. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the Fredcast, but between now and then Enjoy the music, but most of all, enjoy the ride.
Say